Let's open in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time to come together to worship you, to fellowship as brothers and sisters in Christ, and to enjoy the grace that you give to us, Lord. We pray that uh, you would bless the sermon and you would give it clarity and that you would just make your word clear and that you would write it on our hearts today. And we thank you for your grace and amen. So today we are continuing our series called the GCF Vision. Uh, The vision or the GCF vision is a term we use a lot, but we haven't had a thorough teaching on it in a while, or not since Greg was teaching at RCF. So in this series, we're trying to explain it thoroughly and concisely, which is a bit of a big job. Uh, So the GCF vision is that there are certain aspects of Christianity that God wants Christians to rediscover and restore. Uh, And we're focusing on five of them. Number one, having a biblically complete understanding of, experience of, and presentation of the gospel. Number two, being grace-based instead of performance-based. Number three, being reformed and charismatic. Number four, understanding the role, relevance, and responsibilities of the church. And number five, having a victorious eschatology. So we're not saying that there aren't churches who do well in these areas. Uh, There's tons of churches that do well in a few, one or two or a few of these areas, but there aren't many churches that do well in all five of these areas. But we believe that that's something that God wants to become commonplace in the church. So we are on subsection four of this series, understanding the role, relevance, and responsibilities of the church. And, uh, and today's sermon is titled, The Meaning of Christian Brotherhood. Amen, brother. So calling each other brother in Christ or sister in Christ is a term we use a lot, but I think for a lot of Christians, it doesn't really have any meaning behind it. It's just like, well, that's what I call them. Um, but there's a reason we call each other brother and sister Christ. There's deep meaning behind it, and we're going to get to that. So my, my whole point for this sermon, I've only got one point for this sermon. If you remember anything, or if you only remember one thing, remember this. God wants us to really think of the church as our true family and actually treat other believers like we would family members. Amen. And that's, that's easy to overlook or kind of not really think about. But God wants us to really think of the church as our true family and actually treat other believers like we would family members. And that needs to play out in real ways. We should really think of other believers as brothers and sisters. We should truly think of them as family. And that needs to be real. It needs to play out uh, in real life. I kind of wrote as a joke, but also somewhat serious. If you don't know what a committed family looks like, because we we need to act like a committed family, you can come over to my house and we can watch through the Fast and the Furious series together. And and then you'll understand what real family commitment looks like. (laughs) There's always room for family. But anyways, first I just want to like really show from the scripture that this is the case, that God does want us to really think of other believers as brothers and sisters. So let's, let's examine that in the scriptures. There's four, four points I want to make that together really illustrate this idea that God wants us to actually think of each other as brothers and sisters, as 
actual family. So let's look at Matthew 12, verses 46 through 50. While Jesus was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my, mo- is my brother and sister and mother. And we know that Jesus' will is that people believe in him. So this is kind of a bold statement uh, for Jesus to make. Like Jesus' family is outside, his mother and his brothers came to see him, and somebody said, hey, your mother and brothers are standing outside, they want to speak to you. And he responds by pointing to his disciples and saying, they're my real brothers and mother. Like, that would, this was offensive. Jesus wanted to make a point. And this would have been even more offensive in Jesus' day than in ours. Because uh, in that culture, people cared about family more than we tend to today in modern America. So this was a very bold statement. And like Jesus didn't say it as a passing statement just to say something. He wasn't just spouting words. He meant this and there's something to learn from it. And Jesus wants us to consider each other true family. Other believers in Christ are our true family. Jesus thought this way, and he wants us to think this way. But let's, let's look at some other uh, scriptures. Uh, let's look at Mark 10, verses 29 and 30. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake, and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. So in the early church, uh, there was a, you know, persecution was more common than it is in our lives in modern America. And there are a number of people who, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of being Christians, lost their relationship with their mother, with their father, and with their brothers. They lost their family relationship. And Jesus is saying, uh, whoever, for the sake of the gospel, loses their family will, in this life, receive a hundred times more. But he's referring to the church. It's not that, like, if I have a kid and then I become a Christian and then my kid hates me, I'm going to have a hundred more kids. Like, literally, no, that's not going to happen. Jesus is talking about the church. But in saying that, he's saying the church is our family. And he means it. But I want to look at one other passage that shows that Jesus lived with this mentality, that believers are a family, like for real. It's not just some nomenclature we use. It's something to be thought consistently and lived out. Let's look at John 19, verses 25 through 27. But standing by the cross of Jesus were Jesus' mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his, wo- his mother, Woman, behold, your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold, your mother. 
And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. So Jesus was the firstborn son in his family. He was Mary's firstborn child. So he had the responsibility of taking care of her. And there's reasonable reason to believe or to assume that Joseph, Mary's husband, is probably dead at this point. Um, So Jesus would have the responsibility of taking care of his mom. And it would be normal when Jesus passes away for one of Jesus' brothers, because we know Jesus had brothers, to take up the responsibility of financially caring for Jesus' mother. But Jesus gives that responsibility to John, to John the Apostle. And I think this is an example, this might just be my opinion, but I think this is an example showing that Jesus thought of John as his true brother. Like this isn't, one, the, the main thing I want to get across today is calling each other brother and sister needs to not just be a nomenclature. It needs to not just be some empty thing we say. Jesus really taught to think of others, to actually think of other believers as family and treat them like family, and he actually did that. So that's my first reason for the premise of the Bible teaches that we should really think of other believers in Christ as family and actually treat them like family. The next point I want to get into, the New Testament offers constantly refer to other believers as family. Let's just look at a few examples out of the hundreds of examples that there are. We'll look at five of them. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1.10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and make the same judgment. Hebrews 3 verse 12, uh, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. James also writes this way. In James 1 verse 2, he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various Uh, when you meet trials of various kinds. Peter, as well, writes to the church as family. 1 Peter 5, verse 9. Resist Satan, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And also John. Let's look at 1 John 3, 13. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. So throughout the entire New Testament, the New Testament authors are constantly referring to other believers as family. It's throughout the scriptures, or throughout the New Testament. Not only that, but Paul teaches that we should treat other believers like we would family. Not just think of them like family, but treat them like family. Let's look at 1 Timothy 5, verses 1 and 2. Do not rebuke an older man, or do not harshly rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. So Paul is telling Timothy to, so we we already know we should think of other believers as family, and Paul is telling Timothy to treat other believers as family. And um, 
Not only that, but kind of as a a last point, God places an extra high priority on how believers treat each other. Let's look at Galatians 6.10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. And I I have two other passages we were going to look at, but for the sake of time, we won't. I'll just briefly reference what they are. But there's also, if you remember, in Matthew 25, where Jesus says, if you've done anything to one of these, my brothers, even the least of these, you did it to me. He doesn't say that about non-believers. He says that about believers. God places a very high value on how we treat each other. God wants us to really think of each other as family and actually treat each other as family. It's not just, you know, a word we throw around that doesn't mean anything. So what should that look like? What does being a family look like? So being a family entails at least three major things. Prioritizing each other, unity, and affection. So we're just going to look at those in order. Being a family means prioritizing each other. So, you know, what does it mean to prioritize each other? The first thing I would want to suggest is what I would call principle-based commitment to each other. What do I mean by principle-based commitment to each other? It means being committed to each other out of principle, whether you feel like it or not, like you would for family. A lot of things that we do for our families, we don't feel like doing but we do it because they're family. But we wouldn't do it just for anyone. We treat family a certain way out of principle. We just do it just because, because they're family. So we in the church, since we are family, should have principle-based commitment to each other if we're really going to treat each other like family. And you may think, well, that doesn't sound like, you know, being committed out of love. But even though commitment to each other should be something we delight to do, it should be, like they say at Chick-fil-A, my pleasure, it never stops being our duty. It should be our pleasure, but it's still a duty, and we should think of it as both. It should be something we want to do willingly and gladly, but it's still a duty, and we should still think of it like one. It's a duty that we're glad to do. I'm glad to take care of Jeremiah, but it is also my obligation to take care of Jeremiah. And it would be pretty, it would be bad if I forgot or stopped thinking that it was my obligation to take care of Jeremiah, even if I still delighted to do it. It's important that I remember that it's an obligation. We should have principle-based commitment to each other, and that should apply in real ways. Two of them that come to mind, uh, you know, serving each other. When a person in the church has a need, we should treat it as if a family member had a need. You help people in your family just because they're family. And this doesn't just apply to people in the local church you attend. This whole mentality of treating other believers as family applies to every believer in the world. Biblically speaking. And I think it should also apply to how we think of fellowship. We should get together to fellowship. And, uh, and a lot of people don't necessarily enjoy fellowshipping with their family. But when there's a family reunion, what do you do? 
you attend anyway, because it's family. And that we should have that level of commitment to each other. Uh, and I think prioritizing each other also entails sharing resources as needed, like you would with family. Let's look at Romans 12, verse 13. <clears throat> Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. And also 1 John 3, 17. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother or another Christian in need, yet closes his heart against him, how can God's love abide in that person? So we should have principle-based commitment to one another, to other believers. And we should be willing to share resources with other believers. And we should be willing to make sacrifices for other believers. I want to give a few examples from the scriptures of how New Testament uh, early church believers were committed to each other. Let's look at 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 4. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they have they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. So there was a famine going on in Jerusalem. So there's already persecution, because persecution's just going on wherever there's Christians. So Jerusalem Christians are persecuted, and there's a famine. And then there's these Christians in Macedonia who are very, very poor. They have uh, extreme poverty, as Paul puts it. And they hear about the believers suffering in Jerusalem, suffering persecution, and suffering because of the famine. So a lot of them probably don't have food. And these believers in Macedonia thought, well, we're, we're very poor, but they don't have food. So we're going to give what we can and then give more. That's commitment to other believers. That's treating other believers like family. I want to give another example from Hebrews. Let's look at Hebrews 10, verse 34. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So there are some things we can infer from this verse. So among the Christians that... Um, that the author of Hebrews is writing to, there were some who, for reason of persecution, being persecuted, were thrown in prison. And some of the believers who didn't get thrown in prison were thinking, oh, we should go help them. Prison conditions were quite terrible. Uh, they are not like modern American prison conditions. So they might not even have food in prison a lot of the time. And so these believers who weren't thrown in prison were like, we should go minister to, we should go help the brothers of ours who were thrown in prison. And because they did that, I mean, you have to do it publicly somewhat. The prison guard is going to see that you brought food to this person who's in prison. Because they helped them, people persecuted them. It became obvious, oh, we're going to associate with you, you with this person who's in prison because you're helping them, and now we're going to persecute you. 
Now we're going to steal your property or vandalize your house. And I think they knew, if nothing else, that there was a high level of risk that this would happen. And Paul says that they joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. They knew that either for certain, or at least there was a chance, that they would be persecuted for helping the imprisoned believers. And they decided to do it anyway. And the author of Hebrews affirms their commitment later on in chapter 13, saying, Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you are also in the body. So we see that in the early church, believers had a high level of commitment to other believers. And we should have principle-based commitment to each other because we're family, and that's what family does. So the first aspect of what being a family looks like is, having, is prioritizing each other. But the second one I want to talk about is unity. Families are supposed to have unity. So how do we have unity in the church? How, what does unity mean? What does it look like? How does, how does that work? Well, the, the first aspect of having unity that we should have is we should have unconditional unforgiveness for other believers, and really for anyone for that matter, but especially for other believers. Let's look at Colossians 3, verses 12 through 13. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, or bearing with other believers, and if one has a complaint against another, or another believer, forgiving each other, As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. We are not allowed to not forgive other believers in Christ. It's forbidden by Christ. And that's part of the unity we should have as a family, always forgiving each other. Families tend to not operate very well if everyone's bitter at each other or if people don't forgive each other. We are to forgive each other no matter what. That doesn't mean we shouldn't rebuke each other, but we should forgive each other. That brings us to the next thing. We should have principle-based, or just because, even if we don't feel like it, commitment to conflict resolution. Healthy families are committed to conflict resolution. You can't afford to allow barriers to come up between you and your family if you can prevent it or if you can do anything about it. So by conflict resolution... If everybody's mentality is, I'm just going to forgive all the time and I'm never going to rebuke, that's eventually going to fall apart. I don't know if you've realized that or not, but that's eventually going to fall apart. That isn't going to work. Um, And you know, we are told in the scripture to rebuke one another. Let's look at Luke 17, verse 3. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. We are to rebuke one another, and life doesn't go well when we don't rebuke one another. In a healthy relationship, you have to have conflict resolution, and you have to have confronting the other person. This is one thing that I learned from that one book, um, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, or something like that. But one thing that really stuck to me from that book is this idea that if you have a relationship with someone, and he gives the example of a business relationship, 
Uh, let's say you have a contract with another business and they do things you don't like. You could just forgive them and let it go. But if you keep doing that, eventually you're going to break, uh, you're, you're going to get out of that contract with them and you're going to hire somebody else. It would actually be more loving for you to rebuke them because what they're doing to you is causing you to not like them, even though you're forgiving them, but it's not in their best interest for you to not like them. So you're actually being unloving by not rebuking them. And that applies to personal relationships. If something someone else is doing is causing you to not like them, you're being, if it's a close relationship, you're being unloving by just letting that go on without telling them about it. That's an unloving thing to do, and it ruins relationships over time. That's part of how two people can be married for years and resent each other and just not like to be together, even if they forgive each other. As Christians, we're called to conflict resolution. We're called to uh, rebuke one another, to, to be real with each other. And conflict resolution is kind of scary. It's scary to confront someone and say, hey, what you're doing really annoys me, because they might be mad at you. But we need to do it anyway. It's the loving thing to do. So those are two ways we should have unity. We should have unconditional forgiveness, and we should have principle-based commitment to conflict resolution. But another form of unity we should have is we should have a team mentality instead of a competitive mentality, Amen. with other believers, that is. So what do I mean by that? Well, in a family, or in a healthy family, if your brother gets a raise at his job, you're not mad about it. And you, you also don't feel neutral about it, you feel glad about it, because the family is making more money, because the family is a team. It's not important that you aren't making more money, it's important that the family is making more money. That should be important to you, more so than whether or not you get a raise. Or if your sister gets an A on her test, in a healthy family, if she got an A and you got a B, you're not upset about that. You're glad that she got an A on her test. For church is to have a team mentality. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 12, verse 26. If one member suffers, all suffer together. And if one member is honored, all rejoice together. We should have a team mentality with other believers because we are a family and a family is a team. So we're, we are to think of each other as family and treat each other as family, and that should mean prioritizing each other, and that should mean unity. But there's one more thing that that should mean, that being a family should entail, and that's affection. So having affection for one another is actually a big thing in the Bible, and even though I think it gets pretty well overlooked, but the Bible is clear that brothers and sisters in Christ, or as brothers and sisters in Christ, God wants us to actually develop affection for one another. Not just sacrificial love, but affection. So let's look at what the Bible says about that. Romans chapter 12, verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Let's also look at 2 Peter verses 1, or chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. 
and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. So Peter is making a list of things, and he's saying, you should have faith, pursue having faith, and also pursue, make every effort to have these things, pursue these things, and of the list of things he tells us to make every effort to, to obtain or to pursue, brotherly affection is on that list, and it is separate from love. Now, the Greek words here are Philadelphia and agape. Agape is the word that gets translated love at the end, and that's sacrificial love. And the word brotherly affection is Philadelphia, brotherly affection. God wants us to actually have affection for other believers. He wants us to pursue it. You know, we did a whole series a while ago on how to lead your heart, and we looked at primarily God wants you to lead your heart. You do have indirect control over your feelings, and God wants you to pursue having brotherly affection for brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's also look at Hebrews chapter 13, verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. This is the same Greek word, Philadelphia, which can be you know, thought of as brotherly affection. It's not just sacrificial love. It's also affection for one another. Let's also look at 1 Peter 1, verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. This is the same word, Philadelphia, brotherly affection. Let's also look at um, an often neglected verse, uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.26. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. Now, A lot of us believe that this shouldn't be applied literally, or at least I think we do, because none of you try to kiss me. Uh, And, you know, in modern America, we might not apply this literally, but it still has to mean something. I think thinking that this verse applies differently based on cultural context can be fine. I'm fine with people interpreting it that way. But it has to mean something, and often we just completely dismiss it. So if you don't show brotherly affection through a kiss, you should still show it somehow. You should at least think of this verse as a command to express the affection that you have for other believers in Christ. I'm fine if you don't interpret it literally, but you can't just dismiss it as meaningless and irrelevant. It has to mean something. We should have affection for one another, and we should express that affection for one another. And we are to direct our hearts towards affection for one another because we're responsible for leading our hearts. Peter wasn't just spouting empty words when he said to pursue brotherly affection. We are to actually lead our hearts towards having affection for other believers. We're to pursue that. Another way, or one somewhat aspect of affection is building close relationships together. In a family, you have close relationships. And in the church, we should have close relationships. And, you know, there's a few aspects of having close relationships, like regular fellowship. And in the church, we should have regular fellowship. Like it says in Hebrews 10.25, do not neglect to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encourage one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. 
We should have close relationships. We should have transparency about real-life issues. We should have mutual love for one another and mutual trust. And if you have regular fellowship and you're real with people, you have transparency and you have mutual love and mutual trust, you're going to develop a close relationship. But we should develop close relationships with one another because we are family. God wants us to actually think of each other as family. It can't just be some empty word we use when we say, good morning, brother. Like, it has, it's not even important so much whether or not you say it. It's important whether or not you think that way. It's important whether or not you think of other believers as brothers and sisters. And it's important whether or not you treat them that way. We sh- and, you know, another aspect of affection that we've mentioned earlier, we should have... Um, principle-based commitment to fellowship. If there's a family reunion, you go to the family reunion even if you don't want to because it's family. And since we're a family, we should be committed to fellowshipping together even if we don't feel like it. Now that doesn't mean you have to spend every minute of every day fellowshipping with other believers because you need alone time with God and you need to you know, go to work but, um, but we should be committed to fellowship out of principle. The last way I think affection should play out is, a, is emotionally caring about the well-being of other believers. We should emotionally care about the well-being of other believers. Let's look at Romans 12, verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Part of actually caring about other believers, part of loving them is caring about their well-being, being happy if things are going well for them, being upset if things are going bad for them. That's what it looks like to actually care about someone's well-being. And let's also look at somewhat of an, uh, an even stronger example. Let's look at Hebrews 13 verse 3 again. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you are also in the body of Christ. God wants us to actually emotionally care about the well-being of other believers, and we should seek to lead our hearts towards that because we're responsible for leading our hearts. So that's what I have to say about affection. So uh, kind of getting to the conclusion now. I know I've said this many times, but this is the whole point of this message. We need to actually think of other believers as family. And this should really affect our everyday outlook on life. And it should affect how we make decisions in life. You know, if a brother in the church gets a flat tire and texts you about it, and you're thinking about just ignoring it and moving on with your evening, because your evening really is busy and you really do have important stuff to do, ask yourself, would I react the same way if a family member texted me this? Maybe you would, maybe you wouldn't, but ask yourself that. If you, if you find out that a, a brother in the church is going through a financial crisis and you're thinking about whether or not to help, ask yourself, would I even be thinking about this if this was a family member? You know, if there's a, a believer in the church and one of their loved ones died and they could use someone to come over and visit, ask yourself, what would I be doing for them if this was a family member? This needs to actually affect our everyday decisions. This needs to be part of how we look at life. And honest, I, I kind of think we, we probably need to do better with this as a church. 
So for this sermon, I just had in mind to do a sermon on community, and I'm like, well, I should like skim through that book when the church was a family uh, that I read years ago. And then I, I skimmed through it, and I'm like, huh, I don't really think this way. I kind of forgot about this after reading the book. Like, I think we have, we kind of do, we do well at doing community, but that's mostly just because we like hanging out together. We just like being social, but I'm not sure we actually think this way. Because it wasn't until a, a few weeks ago that I realized I tend to not think this way. I've been forgetting to. I've been forgetting to actually think of other believers as brothers and sisters. And I, I would bet that a lot of us have forgotten that. And I think we need to make sure we're actually doing that. And I think we need to do better if that is a church. So in conclusion... God wants us to really think of the church as our true family and actually treat other believers like we would family members. And if we don't actually think of other believers as family members in part of our everyday thinking, and if we don't seek to apply that belief in practical ways, then we're failing to follow the scriptures in this area. And so we should be thinking of other believers as family and treating them that way, and that should cause us to prioritize other believers and to have principle-based commitment to them, and it should cause us to pursue unity with other believers, and it should cause us to have affection for other believers and close relationships. So let's close in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for your grace for us that you have given us a family to be a part of. Thank you that you are our gracious father and that you are the leader of this family and that you are constantly adding more people to this family. Uh, We pray that you would help us to apply this and that you would uh, just remind us of your grace. And we thank you for the great grace which you have for us, for the forgiveness and empowerment that you have for us. And we praise you and amen.